All right, I trust your heart has already been encouraged by hearing those testimonies and seeing what God is doing in our church uh, through uh, the mission trip and, and uh, everything connected with that and planning a church in uh, Logan, Utah. At this time, we'd like to dismiss children in children's church, so children ages K-4 through third grade can be dismissed uh, to the Welcome Center for Children's Church, uh, where a worker will walk them over to the children's ministry building. Uh, parents, make sure your child is checked in, has a sticker, and, uh, and then after our service or after the Bible study following, um, you can swing by there and pick up your children uh, and uh, take them home with you. Uh, enjoy the rest of this day. So, it's been quite a few weeks since we've been in Genesis, and I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. Um, you know, uh, we've had uh, some unique services the last several weeks, and uh, there have been testimonies and devotionals and uh, preaching from different texts, and really been desiring to get back into Genesis 22. It's been three or four weeks. Uh, during that time, I will say, you're really good at putting pressure uh, on a preacher. I had several of you just say, man, I just can't wait for Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 20. I've got all these very important questions, and I know you're going to deal with those as you work through the text. So for the last three or four weeks, I've been panicked thinking, you know, trying to predict your questions uh, that you might have in Genesis 22. It is a powerful text. I look forward to working through it with you for the next half hour and uh, considering this passage with you. When we come to Genesis 22, we do come to perhaps one of the most important passages about Abraham in the Bible. This chapter has been called the best-known event of Abraham's life, the greatest test, and the summit of the Abrahamic narratives. Yet in this passage, uh, this passage is not only important for what it teaches us about Abraham, it is important for what we can learn about God. While our impulse is to come to this great text about Abraham sacrificing Isaac and to look for the finest of humanity, the noblest moments of a human being, I would suggest that it's more important for us to come to this passage to learn to see what we can about God. Having said that, I acknowledge that not every reader leaves Genesis chapter 22 with warm fuzzies in their heart about the character of God and what God asks Abraham to do to his son in this text. As a matter of fact, perhaps you've heard of the name Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is the author of a book called The God Delusion. I don't normally quote an atheist in a Lord's Day meeting, but I want you to hear, I want you to listen briefly to what this critical, sinister atheist suggests about God in this passage. He said, God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trussed Isaac up on the top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with the news of a last-minute change of plans. God was only joking, after all. 
tempting Abraham and testing his faith. He continues, a modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying into asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. That is, I was only obeying orders. Yet this legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monolithic or monotheistic religions. This is how one unbeliever views God in this text. Perhaps as you come to this text, you read it, and you're not quite as critical as this man. But you also have questions about what God is calling Abraham to do. Yet if you today will recognize the larger canonical function of this passage, you can leave this text more confident in God's goodness, His grace, His kindness, and His love for you. This passage contains embedded clues that point forward and demonstrate this story's role in the Bible's larger story. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to work through this text And we're going to look for its fuller message so that we can rejoice in the love and character of our God. And so as we work through the text, I've got three points. Sermon title is The Greatest Trial, Genesis 22. The first point is verses 1 and 2, the test. And I want you to look there in your Bibles. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Here, right at the very beginning, Moses tells us the nature of the story. He explicitly says, some of the very first words of verse 1, God tested Abraham. Now, if you're looking throughout Scripture, several times you'll come across the same subject and verb, God tested someone. This is not something that's unusual for God. God will test people in Scripture, but he's got unique purposes for doing so. Um, As a former Bible college professor and seminary professor, I used to be in the habit of giving out tests. It was a lot of fun for a teacher. Prepare the test, share the pain, uh, let them, uh, let all your students take it, and uh, I did that for 15 years. Uh, And uh, as a result, over the years, I think I got pretty good at predicting normally how someone would do in the test. You could just tell by the way they would apply themselves or not apply themselves throughout the week. The purpose of the test, however, that I gave was not so much for me. There were things I could learn about how the students are doing in the class as a professor. But the purpose wasn't so much for me as much as it was for the student. 
I wanted the student to see how they were doing, whether they were grasping the information, and whether they needed to apply themselves more. In a similar way, God does not test someone to learn himself how someone is doing. No, that's not right. God always already knows the genuineness of our hearts. God does not need to search for an understanding of someone's genuineness. Now, there are other things we can know just from the whole of Scripture about the nature of God and tests. One other thing we know from Scripture, and perhaps you know James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, is we know that God does not test someone in order to tempt them to sin, like this atheist Richard Dawkins was suggesting. James 1 and verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it was conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. God does not test someone in order to tempt them to sin. Instead, God tests people so that they might see the true condition of their own heart. Think of another time this verb is used of God's testing of people. It's Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you Testing you, why? To know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. You might read that text and think that God himself wants to know what's in their heart. That's not the case. He tests us so that we might learn more about the true condition of our heart. Whether we will obey him in difficult or easy times as well. Abraham's test was a challenging one. God requires him to take his son, Isaac, and offer him for a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Now, there's actually two important things I want to point out to you about verses 1 and 2 before we move along. The first thing I would uh, draw your attention to that stuck out to me this week as I looked at this test is God emphasizes the difficulty of this test by the language that he uses. He uses very strong language. Abraham is to take his son, his only son, the one whom he loves. Perhaps you've heard preaching on this before, and you've heard a preacher just walk through each one of those descriptions. Isaac was special to Abraham. He was the pride and joy of his life. As an elderly man, he probably became even more special to him when Abraham, after Abraham had to dismiss his son Ishmael. So that Isaac is the only remaining legal heir to the promises and the inheritance offered to Abraham. This test, however, is far greater because sacrificing Isaac will leave Abraham without any heir. I think it's also difficult because the text says Abraham loved Isaac. That is, uh, to me it was was a, a great observation I'd never seen before this week when I noticed that 
this is the very first time the word love is used in your Bible. Abram loved his son Isaac. So this test is significant because it involved Abraham's most precious possession, a precious relationship. And men and women, that is sometimes how God works. Sometimes his tests have to do with those things, those pursuits, or those people who are most dear to us to teach us what is in our own hearts. Before we go to the next section here, I ask, is God currently testing you regarding something precious to you? Is it extremely difficult challenge for you? Is he asking you to give up some relationship? Some dream? Some people? Well, if that's the case, I encourage you especially to pay close attention to learn what God wants you to learn in the rest of these verses. There's one other thing I'd point out in verses 1 and 2, and that is, uh, perhaps you didn't know this, but the mountain upon which Abraham offers Isaac has special significance later in your Bible. Now, this mountain, Mount Moriah, is only named by name one other time in the Old Testament Scriptures. I don't know if you've ever seen this. For sake of time, I've given you the text here, and I want to read it to you, and I want to make some comments about this. 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Sometime before this text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1, David sinned against God by numbering the people. You remember that? It wasn't supposed to, but he numbered the people of Israel. So God punished David and the Israelites with pestilence until they were thoroughly punished. And at the end, God commanded David to build an altar on the threshing floor of Ornan that you see referenced in this text behind me. So David bought the threshing floor and offered sacrifice to God as a means of atonement there. And later, his son Solomon is called by God to build the temple on this exact spot. And in this verse, we find out that this spot is not just the threshing floor of some man you probably have never heard before, but this threshing floor, this site, is on Mount Moriah. This is the same place where years before, Abraham was called to offer his own sacrifice. And so this special place of sacrifice, the future temple mount for the Israelite people, is where God called Abraham and David and Solomon and generation after generation of Israelite people to offer sacrifice to the Lord. This is one of the first times in the text, even the first few verses, you can see this text is pointing forward to other significant sacrifices. Okay, now having said that, this is the nature of Abraham's test. He is to offer his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And that leads us naturally to what's Abraham's response going to be? Right? And you know enough of the story, hopefully, to know what, what comes in verses 3 through 14. So I just want to read the response with you. And now I'll make some observations about it. Look at verse 3. 
It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of the young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. Two words, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What I'd like to do is just walk through this response and point out four ways I think Abraham's response is worthy of emulation. Okay, let's look at his response and let's consider what he does. does. And I can emphasize different things here, but I'll go quickly. First, Abraham promptly obeys God. We see this right at the beginning of the text. So Abraham rose early in the morning. This is similar to his first test. You remember the first test? Uh, months ago now, right? Back in Genesis chapter 12, God says, I want you to leave your father and your kindred and go. And the very next verb in the text is, he went. He went. <clears throat> in this ultimate test of Abraham's faith here, he rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey, takes the young men with him. Everything in the text, the beginning of this response is moving quite quickly, but you need to pay close attention to the fact that Abraham is not reluctant. He doesn't linger in his disobedience. He does not procrastinate or delay. He's just willing and humble and ready. He stands ready to follow the Lord. I don't know, I, I love this whole text, but when I read the first part of verse 3, there's just something special about that part of the text to me, where it says, Abraham arose early in the morning. Something glorious about that. And I think it's because it points to the fact that he promptly obeyed God. I ask you, is it your impulse to promptly obey God? Has God ever revealed something to you about where he wants you to go or what he wants you to do? Perhaps he's challenged you today to give, give over to him your life's pursuit or to change things up so that you could pursue missionary service or 
function as a pastor with the rest of your life? Teens' testimonies this morning were powerful. It is a call, some of them experienced, a call to give up all to serve the Lord with their lives. Some within our body have done that, right? They've changed things up. Put their families in RVs. Trucks or however you get there. Moved the whole way across the country so that they could be part of planting a church in an area where people have not heard the name of Jesus or they do not understand the significance of Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation. Are you willing to cut the ties with your own plans and follow God immediately? Or are you delaying or procrastinating? Abraham's obedience was prompt. How about yours? Abraham promptly obeys. The second lesson, these aren't profound, but they're just obvious in the text. Abraham trusts God. He trusts in God in the text. Once you look again at verse 4 and 5, it says, On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with a donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Second, we learn that Abraham trusts God in the test. Here he goes on this journey, and we find out the journey takes three days. Now, honestly, one of the most fascinating things to me about studying the text, the last, what, I've had three or four weeks now to study it, uh, one of the most fascinating things to, to, for me to see is that there's not much at all, if anything, mentioned about how Abraham thinks or feels. Did you notice that? Like, if this is a modern novel, a story like this, there'd be so much about what's going on in Abraham's mind, about what's going on in his heart, the sorrow he experiences, and all that. There, it's not in this passage. If you read through Genesis chapter 22, you can't really see much about that at all. You see his humble obedience. Now, there is one intriguing phrase that we find out later in the Bible reveals to us a little bit about what he's thinking. And that's at the end of verse 5. So at the end of verse 5 there, he says that he and Isaac will return once they worship on the mountain. He's talking to the other young men. I and the lad, we're going to come back to you. Okay, and in light of what we know the rest of the story, there's only a few ways to explain what he's saying there. Okay, and so the commentaries are really good on this. This is like obvious. Any one of you could come up with it. There are only a few choices. It may be that he's lying. One thing we know about Abraham, he's gotten pretty good about lying over the years. So he could be lying about coming back after it's done. He could be confused. He could be hopeful. Having said all that, I think there's a better answer, and it's given to us by the author of Hebrews. Later on, the author of Hebrews tells us what is going on in Abraham's mind. And it's Hebrews 11, verses 17 and 19. Let me just read it to you. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, 
from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So according to the author of Hebrews, there is one thing we can know about what Abraham's thinking, and that is this. Somehow Abraham thought that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. That's the position I would take. Find it good to agree with the authors of Scripture and the positions they take. Although Abraham had never heard of something like this before, and although Abraham did not have the privilege of knowing that one day his Savior, the future Savior of the world, would defeat death through resurrection, Abraham thinks this. He thinks, God has made promises to me. He's made promises of so many things through Isaac. He must be going to bring him back from the dead. Thus, in the moment of test, Abraham's faith is commendable. He believes that God will fulfill his promises. He trusts in God's miraculous power in the test. And Boy, there's a lot that you and I can learn about that. He trusts in God's miraculous power in the test. But we move on. The third response I would just bring out to you is that Abraham encourages others to trust God in the test as well. His belief leads him to do something else admirable here. In, in verses 7 and 8, Abraham encourages his son Isaac that God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. You remember this, right? Isaac asked Abraham a genuine question about what was going on. Where's the lamb? Right? And Abraham's answer flows with confidence in God's provision. I think Abraham knew by this time in his life as an elderly man that he could trust God without any reservation. And that information was something that was important for not only him, but it was something important for him to pass along to his son. There may be times you don't know how God is going to provide for you or what he is doing, but men and women, may God give you the courage to trust him and to be a voice that calls those around you to trust God as well. I'm talking specifically right now to parents, fathers, mothers. When you go through your test, may God give you grace to trust God and point your children to the reality that they can trust Him as well. I'm talking to grandparents who might have to endure more physical trials and difficulties. And I'm challenging you to not only have faith and trust that God is going to provide, but to encourage others to trust him as well in the test. That leads to a fourth observation about Abraham, and that is Abraham thoroughly obeys. His obedience was immediate, but it's also thorough. It's prompt, but it's also complete. He doesn't stop short of fully obeying God, and in verses 9 and 10, I love how the, the narrative kind of slows down. The pace slows down. It's taken days up to this point, but now it slows down. And you just get, you get this like prolonged moment where he's going to sacrifice his son. And it makes all of us experience that with him. Look again at verse 9. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top the wood. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Here Abraham reaches out his hand. He takes the knife, which in Hebrew could be translated the, the uh, destroyer. Takes the knife, the destroyer. In order to slaughter, and that's a strong word, and I like the way the ESV is translated, slaughter. He takes the destroying knife to slaughter his son. You can see Abraham's firm commitment to follow through on what God asked. And we learn in the text, in the next verse, that it actually takes an angel of the Lord to stop him. It says twice, Abraham, Abraham, to stop him. And then there's a provision of a ram as a substitute sacrifice. So, what do we learn about Abraham in this story? It might be too simple, but I think what we learn about Abraham can be summarized with two words. Trust and obey. Because you're looking at the outline I just gave you in the four responses. Abraham promptly obeys. He thoroughly obeys. This is about obedience. And this test is also about trust. Sometimes we sing that old hymn, Trust and obey without really thinking about the wisdom that's found in its chorus. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. What do we learn from Abraham in this text? Trust and obey. But there are vital things to learn about God here as well. Abraham's actions are not normal here. It's not normal that a father would be called to sacrifice his son. This sort of action is not really matched by other things in the Bible or in salvation history with only one notable exception. Abraham's devotion is paralleled or matched, maybe overcome by, God's love to us through his son Jesus. There are actually many parallels in this text between this text and Abraham's sacrifice and God's. Let me just point out a few of them to you. You probably have seen some of this in your own reading. As Abraham is called to sacrifice his only son whom he loves, God sacrifices his only son whom he loves for the sins of the world. As Isaac carried the wood on his own back, right, that would be used for his own sacrifice, Jesus carried his own cross to the point of his crucifixion. As Isaac quietly submits to Abraham, his father, I think of Isaiah 53 that says, so one day there'll be one who'll be led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. As the substitutional ram is caught by his thorns, or by his horns, thorns, horns in the thicket of thorns, Jesus will one day 
have a crown of thorns crushed down upon his own head. So in this passage, God's call to Abraham to almost sacrifice his son mimics God's actual call to give his own son for our sins. Before we move along to the final point in this passage, I want to give you two important thoughts here that I think will help you understand more the character of God in this text. The first one is this. One must read Genesis chapter 22 contextually, that is, in the context of this story, paying attention to things around it. One must read Genesis 22 contextually and canonically. This we need to read and understand how this story fits in the whole of this book. If you're going to properly interpret the story, if you're going to truly understand the nature of God's character, you not only have to know the story, you have to know how it fits in the whole of the Bible. And that's where I leave you with this other thought, and this, I think, is most significant. Anyone who questions God's character in this text fails to understand that this passage is actually a picture of God's own sacrifice of his own beloved son. So that like the thing that shocks the modern reader or the reader of no faith, that God would ever expect a father to do this to his son, is relieved when we know that it is pointing forward to God's actual sacrifice of his own beloved son that he loved for us. This text is about God. Perhaps someone has written you a letter before a long letter, and you just skimmed it over? And then you focused in on one little part of the letter, one little paragraph, one little line, and then that left you with the wrong impression of the author. I'm telling you, don't do that with this text, Genesis chapter 22. No, this is a text that points forward to one who actually chose to slay his own son. For the sins of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the nature of our God and his love. One other point in this text I'll point out, and that would be the results, and I'll just read through them. They're pretty straightforward. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. 
Here God reiterates the blessings, uh, the promises that he given to Abraham. Abraham is blessed and multiplied and his offspring will one day be innumerable. God just doesn't repeat the promise here. There is one addition, and that is he takes an oath in order to give Abraham firm confidence that this is going to happen for his seed. He takes an oath. He guarantees it with two immutable things, as the author of Hebrews says, himself and his oath. As we close, let me make two uh, final admonitions to you. First, perhaps you've struggled with what God asks of Abraham and Isaac in this text. Won't you see that what he asks here is what he later demands of himself and his son Jesus? There's a bigger story that's pointing forward to. Second, I want to reassure you in your own trial or test that God has greater purposes and designs than you might ever know. And I ask you, won't you trust the one who gave his own son up for you? Walking through this text and study the last few weeks has been encouraging to me. It's a special text to me. 30 years ago, 30 years ago, I heard someone preach on this text and I surrendered to serve the Lord as a preacher of the gospel of Christ. The reminder to me uh, has been that, uh, as was said by the teens uh, already in the announcements, that this sort of commitment is one that you offer up to God everything. Now, 30 years later, it's a reminder continually be offering up to him everything. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to partake in the Lord's table. I'll ask the musicians, instrumentalists to come up at this time, and Pastor Ben as well. I want to take a moment of quiet reflection here to consider our own lives. What a great story to hear and to think about as it relates to the Lord's table as well and the sacrifice of God's own Son, Jesus, for our sins. And so let me just give you a few moments here to quietly prepare your own heart to partake in the Lord's table.